So if we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Greg. I, I'm the lead pastor here. I was told I need to say that because I, uh, I didn't preach last week. I'm not preaching this week. Uh, actually, Matt's preaching next week, so it'll be three weeks. Um, so someone said I, I need to say who I am. But I'm excited. Uh, the reason I'm not preaching today is because uh, Dan Stevens is going to preach our, our passage for us today. Dan, come on up. Dan and Skyler uh, have been a part of our church for several years now, and sadly, they're moving to Arizona uh, April, I think, 8th, April 8th uh, with, yeah. with Keaton uh, and Sawyer, their kiddos. Um, and they, they love Jesus so well. Um, Dan, Dan loves Jesus, loves the church, loves God's word. Um, they're, they're both going to go to seminary down, uh, down there in Phoenix. Um, and I know several of you know Dan, but I, I'm guessing that for a lot of you that e even if you know Dan, you might not know, a, I don't know if it's a dream or, or a desire that he has had as long as I've known him uh, to, to pastor um, like a little church that couldn't afford uh, a pastor. Uh, Dan works as a counselor, and, and he's just always kind of had in the back of his mind, like, Lord, would you have me do that? And he's been willing to do that. So for a long time, I've wanted to get Dan up here and, and let him serve our church uh, by, by bringing the word to us. So I'm going to get out of the way. Awesome. Thank you, Greg. All right. Well, our, our text this morning is Acts 4, 32 through 37. We're continuing on in the series in Acts. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for an example of church unity. Thank you for an example of Christian hospitality and generosity. I pray that as I dive into this text, that you would take me out of the way, that it would not be my words, but it would be your words speaking through me. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about any of you, but I think our world feels very chaotic today with what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, with Putin invading Ukraine, with inflation, with gas approaching $5 a gallon and in some places over $5 a gallon, with food getting more expensive. I think it's appropriate that Ron asked us last week, how, how do we live in this situation? Do we live out of fear or do we live out of faith? Because fear feels really natural, even though faith is actually the right response. Our nation is very divided today. Republican versus Democrat, mask versus no mask, vaccines versus no vaccines. And I know that this is going back a little bit because of the pace of the 24-hour news cycle, but black lives matter versus all lives matter. And in this context, the church feels very divided. Should we engage in politics or not? Should we be gospel-centered or should we be gospel-consistent? And I think this text offers us some suggestions and some guidelines for how faithful Christians can respond to the chaos and disunity in our day. 
Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. I don't know that I've ever been a part of a church that it could absolutely truly be said that church was of one heart and soul. I am happy to say I, I think that Harvest, this church, has been the closest thing I've experienced to that. But we're not perfect either. We, you know, we grow, we change, we learn. So when we read this of the New Testament church, we should not idealize the New Testament church as perfect because in the next passage, we're going to learn that they had some problems. But any time that we see an indication of unity of the body in the Bible, we should take note. This is a very strong statement by Luke about the church in Jerusalem, that they were of one heart and soul. Jesus prayed for for unity in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And so we should take note of the conditions in this text that lead to the unity that's experienced by the church. And we should do what we can to emulate those conditions in submission to the word and in reliance on the Holy Spirit. And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, I need to be very clear and very firm on this. This is not the Bible condoning any variation of communism or socialism. It is not that the people did not have private property. The, the commandment, thou shalt not steal, presumes that God places value on personal ownership of private property. And in the Gospels and in Acts, Luke and the other Gospel authors frequently mention gathering in people's homes. So this is an issue of stewardship, not an issue of ownership. Stewardship is wisely using the resources that we have been granted temporary responsibility for. So whatever material possessions we have, we have to treat them as providentially granted to us by God, not accumulated by our own merit. Whatever we have, we, we cannot take it with us into eternity. It's not eternally ours. It's only temporary use. If this was a case of scripture condoning communism or, or socialism or some variation thereof, then there would be no need for the two different examples that are given. So in this text that we're dealing with this week, we have the good example of Barnabas. And in the following passage, we have the bad example of Ananias and Sapphira. There's a contrasting good and bad example of what Luke is talking about here. And if Luke wanted to argue for some form of Christian communism, all he would have to say was they had everything in common. No one considered everything his own. And there would be some other dictum that had come down from the apostles about how things were supposed to be, rather than the two examples. So using this using this text to try to argue for communism or socialism or anything like that is an abuse of the text. And the question still remains for us, how do we steward our homes, our cars, our kitchens, our food, our Bibles, our books, our time, our energy, our talents, and our skills? Do we steward those things to God's glory or for our own comfort and our own reputations? When we see a brother or sister Christian in material need, while we have material plenty, how do we respond to that? Do we even spend enough time with our brother and sister Christians that we would know that they are in material need? Or if that's us, to have our needs seen.
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So remember when Peter and John healed the crippled man back in chapter 3, remember Peter's response to the Jewish council. When they confronted him and asked him, by what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. The power that made the apostles' testimonies effective was and still is the Holy Spirit, who will always, always, always point to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom evil men crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Up to this point in Acts, Luke has given us excerpts from at least three different testimonies from Peter. Now, this verse tells us that the apostles, all of them, were giving powerful testimonies to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's not just Peter. It just happens that so far Luke has only given us examples from Peter. Peter's first testimony was at Pentecost in chapter 2. His second testimony was in Solomon's portico in chapter 3. And his third testimony was in front of the Jewish council in the, the beginning of chapter 4. And there's a possibility that Peter was the one praying in last week's passage that, that Ron handled. In all of those cases, Peter, even though he's an uneducated fisherman, demonstrates a very, very thorough grasp of Scripture as it applied to current events, as it applied to his experiences with Jesus and the other disciples. He demonstrated a knowledge of the entire narrative arc of Scripture, the, the story of redemptive history, what scholars call biblical theology. In his confrontation with the Jewish council, he demonstrated his understanding of systematic and practical theology by nailing the very specific issue, the theological issue that was relevant to the conversation he was having with the council, that Jesus was the stone that the builders had rejected and the Messiah that the council had rejected. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, interpreted his experience with Jesus and the other disciples through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around, and he used that interpretation of his experiences and that application of Scripture to point people to Jesus. That is what a powerful testimony is. He understood how Jesus had shown to two other disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 that all of the Scriptures, from Moses to the prophets, pointed to Jesus. So this gives us a few practical application questions that as we look at Peter's example, that we can ask ourselves. How familiar are we with scripture in a wide sense so that we can interpret our times through the lens of scripture and not the other way around? The best way that I know to do this is with whole Bible read-throughs. If you spend about 30 minutes a day reading the Bible, then you'll finish the Bible approximately two to four times a year, depending on how fast you read. A second practical application question is how familiar are we with Scripture in a, in a deep sense? 
so that we can connect specific theological topics to specific conversations that we're in with our family, our friends, and our neighbors. The best way that I know to do this is small group Bible studies. And the key word there is Bible studies, not Christian book clubs. No matter how many great Christian books there are, and there are many, none of them reach the level of the Bible. We should always be reading the Bible first and most. Third, how consistently do we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us interpret and apply Scripture? So that as we interpret and apply Scripture, we're doing it in line with God's intended interpretation and application and not in some subjective reading that's what it means to me. And last, do we interpret and apply Scripture in a way that points others to Jesus? so that others are drawn to Christ through our testimony. So as I ask myself those questions, I am convicted. And I find myself tempted to excuse myself and whine that I don't, I don't have enough time to do all of that. That's so much study. And I imagine I'm not the only one that wants to make that excuse. Thank you. <laughs> the sad reality is that excuse is a flat out lie. In October of 2019, the Washington Post published an article titled, Actually, You Do Have Enough Time to Exercise, and Here's the Data to Prove It. So here's some key statistics from this article. Women, on average, spend 200, excuse me, two hours and 55 minutes entertain, entertaining themselves on their screens. Men are doing no better, and in fact worse, at three hours and 31 minutes. And when I checked my own digital well-being report on my Android phone, I found that in this last week, I spent an average of three hours and 21 minutes entertaining myself on my screen per day. Reading the Bible 30 minutes a day is only three and a half hours a week. Women, on average, spend two hours and 90 minutes per day in other leisure. Men spend two hours and one minute in other leisure. Women spend about 14 minutes a day exercising, and men spend about 24 minutes a day exercising. And while the author of this article was using this information to argue that people do have time to exercise more, I think we as faithful Christians should be using it to say, yeah, you know what, we, we do have more time for Bible study. After all, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for this life and also the life to come, 1 Timothy 4.8. Screen time and exercise are not bad in and of themselves within reasonable limits, but the truth is they make no contribution to glorifying God through powerful testimonies. They make no contribution to a church seeking to function as one heart and soul. They make no contribution to overcoming the chaos and disunity of our day. What we actually need is Bible study, both personal and corporate Bible study, that leads us to the right Christ and to the whole Christ so that we can give powerful testimonies that point people to Christ. That is what will help us to face the chaos and the disunity of our day. And I'm not, I'm not trying to beat anybody up. I am convicted in this as well, and I shared my own 
not very impressive performance. Here's what Psalm 1 says, and this, I think, is an invitation. Blessed is the man who walks, in the counsel, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of still water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Ultimately, Psalm 1 is speaking about Christ, speaking about Jesus, but it can be true of us in smaller ways. And those small ways that is true of us all point to Christ. And I don't know about you, but in the world we live in right now, it sure sounds good to be like a tree planted by streams of still water. And great grace was upon them all. Luke doesn't really tell us what he means by great grace, so we need to use a little bit of biblically informed and scripturally bounded imagination. Imagine being Peter. Imagine that you had been the one who denied Christ three times during his trial. And then a few weeks later, you're looking him in the eyes and he personally directly forgives you and then commissions you to be the first apostle. A few weeks later, you're so filled by the Holy Spirit that you give the first sermon of the New Testament church and 3,000 people come to Christ. And then a few weeks later, you're used by God to heal a crippled man. And when you're confronted by the Jewish council, the PhDs, the leaders of the day, even though you're an uneducated fisherman, they don't know what to do with you. And whatever great grace felt like, I guarantee you that Peter had some certain taste of it. Imagine that you were one of the rioters in the crowd on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion. You start by saying, no, release Barabbas, the murderer, instead of Jesus. And then a few minutes later, you're yelling about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. That was about three, maybe four months ago. And now today, even though everyone knows what you did then, you're a part of this church that is so unified that Luke says they are of one heart and soul. What would that flavor of great grace taste like? Imagine that you had been a faithful Jew. You'd grown up watching and waiting for the Messiah. Your grandparents watched for him, but didn't see him. Your parents watched for him, but didn't see him. And now you have become convinced that it's this Nazarene carpenter named Jesus. And you are one of the 120 in the upper room at Pentecost. And you're now seeing God's kingdom come and be built and seeing daily God add to their number. And you're part of this hyper-unified church body. Imagine what that flavor of great grace might taste like. This great grace was a result of being deeply and widely grounded in Scripture, relying on the Holy Spirit and testifying about Jesus. If that kind of great grace were to fall on a church today, I imagine that every member of that church would, it, would report at least four experiences. First, a sense of the glory of God and the glory of God's grace in forgiveness. 
probably something along the lines of what Paul describes in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Second, I think that great grace would have a sense of growing in personal holiness. And not in any sort of self-righteous or prideful way because that is incredibly dangerous. But in a way that is the only right response to being so deeply forgiven. This is a necessary condition for the generosity and the unity that we see in this text today. As James says, faith without works is dead. Or as Paul reminded some in Corinth, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, such was I. But we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I think great grace might feel like more of a sense that our sins and the damage that they do are being washed away and being healed. Might be more that than a sense that we're performing better, we're doing better, but either way, the trajectory is towards a greater degree of personal holiness and a greater degree of Christ-likeness. Third, I think that great grace would have a sense of a positive perception by outsiders. In chapter 2, verse 47, it said that the early church had favor with all the people. And that favor didn't really seem to have slowed down much except with the Jewish council by the time we get here to chapter 4, verse 33. Fourth, I think that great grace would have a sense of effectiveness in ministry as compared to a sense of ceaseless striving, running on the hamster wheel, running on a treadmill. In 247, again, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And the rate of growth doesn't seem to have slowed down by the time we get here. It doesn't seem to slow down at all until we get to chapter 6 of Acts. So for practical application, how strongly do we feel any of those senses of great grace? And if the answer is not very strongly, then we need to go back to the previous practical application questions that we've already discussed and there was not a needy person among them. Now, Luke's first audience, the first person that he was writing the book of Acts for was this rich guy named Theophilus who had sponsored the whole entire journalistic project for Luke to go and do the research to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. I don't know whether Theophilus was a Jew or not, but a Jew hearing this line, there was not a needy person among them, would have immediately thought of Deuteronomy chapter 15. Using Ron's metaphor from last week, it would have been like a drawer pull. And as he pulled on that drawer, inside of that would have been the rest of Deuteronomy 15. 
For us, it's like when I mentioned 9-11, or the war on terror, or Afghanistan. Any of those words invokes a whole entire set of memories and emotions. The problem for us is that we are more soaked by the 24-hour news cycle than we are in scripture. This is another benefit, though, of being deeply and widely rooted in scripture. Because the more you know it, the more often anything you hear can function like one of those drawer pulls that takes you to a particular verse. Eventually, something, there's a visual here, something like this chart might be internalized into your mind. You might not know the specific Bible verse being cited, quoted, alluded to, or echoed, but because of the way that the Bible repeatedly links to itself throughout the entire text, there will be a ring of consistency and familiarity. So on the outside ring of this are all the books of the Bible, and the lines inside the circle are all the links within the biblical text. Deuteronomy 15, though, is one of the chapters in the Old Testament describing the covenant blessings in store for Israel if they honored the terms of the covenant. So a Jew reading or hearing this line from Luke would immediately be taken back to Deuteronomy 15 and they would see what Luke is describing as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15. They would see the church as a spiritual Israel. So here's Deuteronomy 15 starting at verse four. But there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do this commandment that I have commanded you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall, not, you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you. For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now, the last part of that verse might sound a little bit paradoxical because in verse 4 it says there will be no poor among you and then in verse 11 it says there will never cease to be poor in the land a little bit confusing at face value but here's the thing it's not a contradiction it's a distinction among you means among spiritual Israel God's people in the land is keeping in mind the unbelieving neighbors, the immigrants, the sojourners who have come into the land and are not yet a part of spiritual Israel. So going all the way back to Deuteronomy, and in fact further back, and I would actually argue right into Genesis 1, part of God's plan for growing his people, expanding 
his people is through generosity and hospitality. So when we give, do we give freely or do we give grudgingly? Do we give out of obedience to the Lord or out of a desire to be recognized for robust philanthropy? You'll see in the next passage how that works out for Ananias and Sapphira. Not good. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. I need to reinforce again, this is not a biblical proof text for communism or socialism. The selling of property is voluntary. The decision about what to do with the proceeds is up to the person holding the money. In the next passage, Peter will confront Ananias with these two questions. While the land remained unsold, was it not yours to do what you wanted with? And once the land was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal, Ananias? So this is a little bit narrower application than the earlier part about not calling things our own. This is specific to owners of lands or houses. Luke is not admonishing homeowners or real estate investors to divest themselves. If you read the New Testament, terms like house or home in the sense of a permanent, privately owned dwelling occur 221 times in the New Testament. 64 of those are in the Gospel of Luke and 40 are in the the book of Acts. So Luke wrote over half of them. What Luke is doing is reminding a segment of the population who is well off in any generation to not neglect the poor and instead to be generous. Now, I don't know for certain, and I'm admitting some speculation here. I think that some of the money that Theophilus used to sponsor Luke probably came from real estate. It doesn't tell us that. We know Theophilus was well off. And whether I'm right or wrong, what Luke is doing here is not holding back, even with his rich sponsor. So wherever Theophilus' money came from, Luke is being just as blunt with him as he is with everybody else. Wherever Theophilus' money came from, the point of open-handed, free, and joyful generosity is loud and clear. If you have not already read them, I highly recommend the books. These are two good Christian books that are worth a Christian book club around. Uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield and The Simplest Way to Change the World by Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements. Rosaria Butterfield, if you didn't know, was a militant atheist lesbian, used to be a professor in some liberal university, but she was brought to Christ through the hospitality of a local pastor who invited her into his home. She was saved from her militant atheist lesbianism, Christ-hating, by Christian generosity and hospitality. That is a powerful testimony. So for us who are not homeless, whether we're renters or homeowners, what do we do with our homes? What do we do with the space that we live in? Do we steward those spaces to God's glory? Or do we think of them as a retreat from the chaotic world where as soon as we can, we go and hide, we we lock our doors, we close our, our blinds, and we hide from our neighbors. We don't even know our neighbors beyond waving to them when we take the trash out or go out to get the mail. Or we do do we invite our neighbors into our homes? 
Do we invite them over for dinner? Or just to hang out for the weekend? Many of our neighbors may not come to church with us, but many of them might come into our home and spend a day with us, just hang out and talk, play card games, play board games. They might come over for dinner. And after enough of those episodes, they might come to church with us. For us who have owned and sold more than one home or perhaps our landlords, what do we charge for rent? Do we get as much as we can following inflation, penny for penny? Or do we keep it reasonably affordable so that someone who needs a home can get a home? When we sell our homes, what do we do with the proceeds? Do we turn them all over into the next investment? Or do we try to make some kingdom investments? And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is a kingdom investment. This is what Luke is encouraging us to do with our extra resources. The fact that the money was faithfully and effectively distributed to each as any had need is, in my opinion, one more point against using this text to argue against socialism or communism. It doesn't take much of a study of history to see that socialism and communism actually increase the neediness of the societies they claim to serve. And even our own government entitlement and public benefit programs are extremely vulnerable to fraud and graft. And I want to be clear, I am not trying to make a political statement. I am trying to faithfully handle this text. I'm trying to be faithful to Scripture. You see, when the church functions in the way that it is supposed to, the government has no place in providing welfare. There is a role for government. Look at Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. There is a role for government. It is not this. God told Abraham at the beginning of the covenant society, he told Abraham that he was going to be blessed in order to be a blessing to all nations. Now that blessing has its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, but every act of generosity or hospitality from God's people is a small fulfillment of that blessing that God told Abraham about in Genesis chapter 12. And every small fulfillment of that blessing points to the ultimate fulfillment of that blessing, which is Christ. If one of God's main tools for bringing others to him is through the generosity and hospitality of his people going all the way back to Abraham, then why would we ever abdicate the responsibility for the welfare of our neighbors? Why would we ever abdicate that to the state? The state does not evangelize Christ. The state evangelizes the interests of the state. Only the church evangelizes Christ. So how do we take back the ground that we've lost to the state in 2022? Christian generosity and hospitality is the simple answer. And I can say, yeah, go be hospitable, go be generous. But how do we know who or what to be generous to? In our church family meeting here a couple of weeks ago, Greg told us about the Compassion Fund here at Harvest. Now, if you didn't already know, you can donate directly to the Compassion Fund. 50% of the money in that fund is set aside for members of the body of Harvest who are in need. 50% of that fund is set aside for members of the community who are in need. And something I thought was interesting 
is that whenever someone in the body of harvest has been in need, it's usually not been the person in need that alerted the church to the need, but some other brother or sister who saw the need. So even if you're not someone with extra resources, if you're spending enough time with your brothers and sisters to be aware of their needs, you can be a part of generosity and hospitality by bringing those needs to the attention of the staff and elders here at Harvest. And for the community, when the, when the community goes to the state to have its needs met, they might get the needs met, they might not. It varies. But when the community goes to a hospitable and com compassionate church to get its needs met, not only does the community get its needs met, they also get the gospel. And for eternal purposes, what do they really need? The gospel. Not just another meal, not just some extra money to cover food or rent or utilities. Though those are real needs and I'm not minimizing those at all. Thus, Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's Luke's positive example of what he's talking about. We don't know why Barnabas sold the field. We don't know how much he sold it for. Barnabas doesn't tell us that. Maybe he was selling everything he owned so that he could follow Christ without material distraction, as Jesus had suggested to the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Another text where Luke was not holding back even to his rich sponsor, Theophilus. Maybe this piece of land was just an extra piece of land that Barnabas had because he was successful in business and real estate investing and he didn't want to manage it anymore. Regardless of why Barnabas sold the land, God, recorded through Luke, sees it as a shining example of gospel-minded hospitality. It's the kind of behavior that you see in a church with not a single needy person among them. It's the kind of behavior that you see in a church upon whom great grace rests. It's the kind of behavior that you see in a church that is giving powerful testimonies to the resurrection of Christ. And it's the kind of behavior that you see in a church that is of one heart and soul. Lord, we have a long way to go. Please help us to be that kind of church. Please help us to be those kind of Christians. Please help us to root ourselves deeply in Scripture and to show the world what unity looks like and to bring a sense of peace to the chaos of our day. We ask these things to your glory and our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen.